Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. And we are in the middle of our study addressing questions of biblical sexuality as we explore the 12 statements that were established by the PCAs at Interim Committee on Human Sexuality, a report that was overwhelmingly received at the 2021 General Assembly. Uh, these 12 statements, as we've been going through them, hopefully have been helpful in clarifying on the pressing questions of today, particular to human sexuality. Today in this episode, we're going to focus on statements 9 and 10 regarding identity and language. And so I'll begin by reading the statement on identity, statement 9. It says, we affirm that believers, the believer's most important identity is found in Christ Christians ought to understand themselves, define themselves, and describe themselves in light of their union with Christ and their identity as regenerate, justified, holy children of God. To juxtapose identities rooted in sinful desires alongside the term Christian is inconsistent with biblical language and undermines the spiritual reality that we are new creations in Christ. Nevertheless, being honest about our sin struggles is important. While Christians should not identify with their sin so as to embrace it or seek to base their identity on it, Christians ought to acknowledge their sin in an effort to overcome it. There is a difference between speaking of sinful desires as a personal identity marker. That is, we name our sins but are not named by them. Moreover, we recognize that there are some secondary identities when not rooted in sinful desires or struggles against the flesh that can be legitimately affirmed along with our primary identity as Christians. For example, the distinctions between male and female or between various nationalities and people groups are not eradicated in becoming Christians but serve to magnify the glory of God in his plan of salvation. For this statement, statement nine, I want to uh, speak to two things I appreciate about this statement. Uh, one is the carefulness, and, and the second one is their word of caution. Uh, one is the carefulness. Uh, I appreciate the carefulness of the statement to affirm and embrace our identity found in Christ and our union with Christ as the most definitive thing that is true of a believer in Jesus. Our identity in Christ is the most important thing about us. It is not our struggle with sin or our orientation to sin that is the most definitive thing about us. It is our identity in Christ. The scripture overwhelmingly speaks to this, even in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, where he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being in Christ Jesus our Lord is the most definitive thing about us, and nothing can change that. Galatians 2, Paul speaks in verse 20 of how it affects his life. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, that union and identity with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Romans 6 talks often about union with Christ and identity, saying, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves, and there it is, living out of your identity, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in light of that identity, Paul goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign. And that's a very important word we'll come back to in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Uh, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And here he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So our identity in Christ shapes who we are. It shapes our relationship to sin. You may have heard those words in Romans about enslavement or dominion. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, you you hear, if then you have been raised with Christ, and we have, then seek what's above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. More identity language in the Bible. And so clearly what I appreciate about the statement is the carefulness to affirm and embrace our fundamental definitive item as followers of Jesus, and it is our identity in Jesus Christ. It's our union with Christ. Uh, Our sin, our self, is not our ultimate definition anymore. We're in Christ. I love how Dane Ortland puts it in deeper, real change for real sinners concerning union with Christ. He says, at this point, you may be wondering how union with Christ fits with the other great and glorious pictures of our salvation, justification, adoption, and so on. The answer is union with Christ is the umbrella doctrine within within which every benefit of salvation is subsumed. When we are united to Christ, we get all these benefits. John Calvin said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless to us. We must be hidden in him. And here's all the benefits of union with Christ. Just listen to these. This is what is the most definitive thing about any believer. You're justified. You're no longer condemned. Why? Because you're in him. You're sanctified. You're no longer defiled. Why? Because you're in him. You're adopted. You're no longer orphaned. Why? Because you're in him. You're reconciled. You're no longer restrained. Why? Because you're in him. You're washed clean. You're no longer dirty. Why? Because you're in him. You're redeemed. You've been bought. You're no longer enslaved. Why? Because you're in him. You've been purchased. You're no longer in debt. You are free because you're in him. You're liberated. You're no longer imprisoned. Why? Because you're in him. You have new birth. You're no longer non-existent. Why? Because you're in him. You can see you're no longer blind. Why? Because you're in him. You're resurrected. Why? You're no longer dead because you're in him. The point is, 
Paul says, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So union with Christ is, has this umbra, is this big umbrella in which all these benefits are underneath it. And that is what is most important about how we define ourselves. It is not, as it says, other struggles, uh, other identities. And therefore, the nevertheless statement comes in statement nine and says, nevertheless, being honest about our sin struggles is important. And one of the reasons I appreciate the nevertheless after the major emphasis on identity with Christ is it has a cautionary feel to it. There's a carefulness to establish our identity, but then I appreciate the cautionary word on what could be a danger called, and big word here, overrealized eschatology. Now, what that means is I anticipate that more is true of me in the present than actually is. Much of that is reserved for the future, such as my struggle with sin. My identity with Christ and my union with Christ does not negate my fight with sin. It does not negate my struggle with sin. And I've heard even in the debate about human sexuality, Christians cite and the statements cite 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're new creations. The old is gone. The new has come as if that eliminates sin. And that's really poor theology. Yes, we're new creations. Yes, the old has gone. The new has come. But we remain in the old man. And therefore, the battle rages on. Uh, the old has come, the new. The old has gone, the new has come. But the sin struggle remains. And the statement says, yes, our identity in Christ is the most definitive thing about us, but it doesn't mean that the sin struggle is removed from us. Says uh, several clarifying things, two very clear distinctions in the statement that we acknowledge our sin to overcome it and we name our sins, but we're not named by them. Those are two really good distinctions when you talk about acknowledging your sin and sin struggle. Being a new creation doesn't mean sin has gone away. But as I acknowledge my sin, I have to remember those two distinctions. I acknowledge it to overcome it, and I name my sin, but I'm not named by them. As John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, famously said, two things I remember very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Both simultaneously at the same time, and yet I am in Christ as my ultimate identity. Being a new creation and sin having no dominion over us, as we read in Romans 6, does not mean that I am free from sin or the sin struggle. Just read Romans 7. But then also read Romans 8. As our salvation and identity in Christ means I have a new power, the Holy Spirit. And I have hope in the fight, one that leads me into triumph. Jesus, as the last verses of Romans 7 exclaim, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. So in summary, this statement on identity is very important. The gospel can certainly and does indeed bring change to the homosexual at the level of their identity. In the gospel, our identity is no longer in being male, female, homosexual, or heterosexual. Rather, we are all now in Christ. 
new creations indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is definitive and unchangeable. Just as the gospel brings change to our identity, the gospel also brings change to our activity. But whereas our identity in Christ is solid and unchangeable, our activity for Christ is fluid and unstable, given that the new man resides in the old man. The process of change takes time. And as in the case of any sinful patterns in our hearts, will never be complete until Christ returns or we die and are present with him. Sanctification is a long, arduous fight to become in our daily lives what we already are in Christ. Now, part of the implication of these truths on identity and activity, justification and sanctification, union in Christ and living for Christ Part of the implication is this, and listen carefully. One sexual orientation may never change. But for those in Christ, your orientation does not and should not overtake your identity in Christ. It is our identity that fuels our activity, not our orientation. Yes, we will still have sinful bents, sinful patterns that we continue to struggle with. In fact, as we grow in the gospel, we're going to become more and more aware of how deep our sin penetrates into our hearts. So change in the life of a person that is a homosexual or struggles with same-sex attraction does not necessarily mean that they must become heterosexual. That's not what gospel change necessarily means. It does mean, just like it does for any person, that the deep-seated idols of the heart that motivate sinful desires need to be constantly uprooted through a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And as followers of Christ... We are all called to live out of our identity and union with Christ and to understand any struggle or orientation that is clearly inconsistent with God's design should be put to death by the power of the Spirit day after day. So identity. I appreciate the carefulness to establish the definitive identity for the believer, but I appreciate the cautionary word that sin remains. And yet when we acknowledge sin, we must acknowledge it to overcome it. And we also must name our sins, but not be named by them. Then statement 10, there's language. We affirm that the statement on language says, we affirm that those in our churches would be wise to avoid the term, quote unquote, gay Christian. Although the term gay may refer to more than being attracted to persons of the same sex, the term does not communicate less than that. For many people in our culture... For many people in our culture, to self-identify as gay suggests that one is engaged in homosexual practice. At the very least, the term normally communicates the presence and approval of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy. Even if, quote-unquote, gay for some Christians simply means same-sex attraction, it is still inappropriate to juxtapose this sinful desire or any sinful desire as an identity marker alongside our identity as new creations in Christ. We'll read the nevertheless in a moment to the opening affirmation. But first, concerning that affirmation, I appreciate the call to wisdom in this statement. It is simply wise in the Christian life to avoid certain language and certain terms for the sake of the community, for the sake of the body, for the sake of the context. Again, what is most definitive and descriptive about me is my identity in Christ, not my sinful orientation. And therefore, our language is important that we communicate that. 
we must be careful with any and all descriptions of self so that they are in accord with biblical wisdom and truth. As the statement says, at the very least, the term normally communicates, meaning gay, Christian, the presence and approval of same-sex sexual attraction as morally neutral or morally praiseworthy. Following our thoughts on identity in Christ, the statement goes on to clarify, even if gay for some Christians simply means same-sex attraction, it's still inappropriate. And it speaks about that. And here's why. When you're speaking, you can say all you want of that's not what I mean, but you have to reckon with what's being heard. That's called wisdom. The wise person does not always defend what they mean They reckon with what's being heard and how it affects the community. The burden of wisdom and love in communication, hear me, is always on the speaker. Language that confuses or troubles the hearer needs to be adjusted by the speaker, particularly in the body of Christ. Two verses, Proverbs 10, 32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. In other words, our words must have an aptness. They must be so lovingly crafted that they are hearable. Wisdom is not just knowing what to say, but when and how to say it. So Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The proverb speaks of our communication as a craftsmanship. Careful placing it so that it is received by the hearer. And in the church, the language, as says in statement 10 of gay Christian, is one, even with the most well-intentioned, as the statement says, that this just simply means same-sex attraction. It's still inappropriate. It's confusing. It's damaging. It diminishes our identity in Christ. And so there is a call to wisdom with our language, but there's also a call away from what can be often sin justification by label of fixation. Let me explain. It says our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. When you begin to label yourself with a struggle, it can quickly, because of the slipperiness of the human heart, become an excuse for the struggle. Let me say that again. Labeling oneself with a struggle can quickly become an excuse for the struggle. This is wise as well in their counsel of why we should not put labels on us that compromise identity. Uh, For instance, one of the great sin struggles of my life is anger. If I just began to say I'm just an angry Christian, over time I could become an excuse for, well, that's just who I am. And I think that's dangerous because then I begin to live out of my own orientation of anger versus my identity in Christ. See, differently, it is I'm a Christian who struggles with anger. And that's better for the hearers and a better way of wisdom with language. Finally, uh, in the nevertheless, let me read that. Uh, There's a great call to gentle patience. Nevertheless, we recognize that some Christians may use the term gay in an effort to be more readily understood by non-Christians. The word gay is common in our culture, and we do not think it wise for churches to police every use of the term. Our burden is that we do not justify our sin struggles by affixing them to our identity as Christians. Churches should be gentle, patient, and intentional with believers who call themselves gay Christians, encouraging them as part of the process of sanctification 
to leave behind identification language rooted in sinful desires, to live chaste lives, to refrain from entering into temptation, and to mortify their sinful desires. We want to encourage people as part of the process of sanctification to do those things that the statement lists at the end, to live chaste lives, refrain from temptation, entering into it, to mortify sinful desires. And yet we need to be careful as in the church as we love and disciple others who know Christ, who are wrestling with struggle, sexual sin, uh, orientation issues, gender dysphoria. We, we need to be careful that we do not become quick word police, that rather than being gentle and patient with them, to call them slowly in community to those things of chaste living and refraining temptation, entering into that and mortifying their sinful desire. We must be gentle with them, patient, depending on the good and faithful work of the Holy Spirit. We have to use pastoral tools to help people see they, what they may not know. There's danger and folly in using that term gay Christian. But we must be careful not to be so quick triggered to say to someone who uses that word, on the basis of you saying that thing, I am shunning you and you are disciplined. That's just not how the Christian community should work. We should be careful to extend to the unbeliever, the unrepentant believer, and the repentant believer the same patience with which God has been patient with us. It takes time. It takes community. And to be a community that merely is policing words is not going to be the safe refuge needed for people who are genuinely struggling to grow in their love and affection for Christ. So we need patient, gentle, pastoral presence with people who struggle with identity, orientation, language. So I'm very thankful for statements 9 and 10. I think they're very clarifying on identity and language. And I am also very thankful even as we wrap up that the most definitive thing about me is not me, it's Jesus. And that's true for all who are in him, no matter what your struggle is. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to future episodes together with you.